Why is recreational activity important? How can we adapt recreational activities for people with disabilities? What kind of benefits do you get from partnering with academia? And what are the gaps in the healthcare system specifically for people with disabilities? Hi everyone and welcome back to Raincoat. Today we have Dr. Bill Miller and Tanel Bolt joining us. In our previous episodes so far, we always had um, academics talk about their projects uh, with stakeholders. And now today we have a community member talk about a project looking for academics. So Tanel, can you introduce yourself and tell a little bit about your story? My name is Tanel Bolt. I am the founder of Rad Recreation Adapted Society, and this charity is focused on raising awareness and availability of outdoor adaptive recreation equipment. And this whole thing started after I sustained a spinal cord injury in a recreation accident at 27 years old. I jumped off of a bridge into a river, feet first, sober for fun, and sustained a paralyzing spinal cord injury at my T6 chest level down. I now live life in a wheelchair and require adaptive equipment to do basically everything in my life that I love to do. I also co-founded Soulfly Experiences, a barrier-free travel experience company that is centric in Western Canada right now and launching in Whitehorse this year. I also have a job with Parks Canada doing facilities auditing because they are now with the Accessible Canada Act paying attention to the needs that have always been needs of people and they stopped sort of focusing on accessibility in the 80s, figuring that they were done. And so that lasts six months at a time, and we'll see if they renew me. And yeah, I spend a lot of time working and a little time playing, and <laughs> it's me in a nutshell. Wow, it's amazing to hear how many things you're on to and so impactful things. Um, we're going to talk more about Recreation Adapted Society. So, Rad, what you just mentioned. Um, and Bill is the lucky academic uh, who is on the podcast here with us today to talk about his part of the project. Um, Bill, can you first of all introduce yourself and your background a bit? Sure. I'm Bill Miller. I'm a professor in the Occupational Science and Occupational Therapy Department at the University of British Columbia. And I do a lot of research related to some of the things that Tanel's already introduced. I, I evaluate and develop technologies to help people with disabilities integrate into society. Uh, I particularly focus on, focus on the aging side, but in Tanel's case, made an exception to uh, focus on more generic disability and accessibility issues. So first met Tanel about, oh, I would say a couple of months ago when was introduced by a fellow uh, occupational therapist who was assisting Tanel with some of her work and saw the connection between the two of our backgrounds. This episode is brought to you by the Master of Digital Media program at the Center for Digital Media. The MDM program is a 16-month professional graduate program that engages students in real-world projects and coursework that provides valuable leadership experience, training, and top digital media industry connections. 
Graduates have the know-how and confidence to work at the highest level in a range of industries as creators, producers, innovators or entrepreneurs. Learn more at the cdm.ca. Hello and welcome to Raincoat. My name is Isabel. And I'm Sarah. And we are excited to share how academia, industry and communities can work together on complex problems and improve knowledge translation. So before we go into the connection piece and really dive into Rad Society, Bill, what does it really mean to be an occupational therapist in your lens and what is your work really focusing on? Good question. Thanks, sir. Um, well, an occupational therapist helps people do the things that they want to do once they've become disabled or they have some form of impairment. So that's the simple definition, but it crosses all ages, crosses all boundaries of impairments and disabilities. Um, as an example, uh, folks can intervene for pediatrics to help kids uh, integrate into school. If they have learning issues, they would work on cognitive strategies to help the children um, learn in a, uh, a more proficient manner. Uh, and at the other age of the spectrum, uh, occupational therapists help older adults stay in their homes. And a lot of this is done with technology, but it's also done with strategies to work with caregivers or with the individual who requires, or the individual with a disability, to actually strategize in terms of whether they need a stair lift to get from the main floor up to their bedroom, or whether it's just getting in and out of the bathtub when they have a mobility disability. So I don't know if that answers your question completely, Sarah, but what I do is I, my research in technology does have a broad range. I do look at mobility or wheelchair um, skills and also wheelchair development and evaluate either intervention programs to improve somebody's ability to use their wheelchair. For a while, we worked on a um, uh, self-drive power wheelchair, and that was about a seven-year project, which led to the launching of a company called Braze Mobility. So really looking at a lot of low tech, such as um, right now, one project looking at uh, raised toilet seats so that people who can't bend down onto the toilet um, can actually do their thing independently. And at the other end of the spectrum, looking at uh, artificial intelligence related to uh, uh, wheelchairs driving themselves. Very comprehensive. So occupational therapy essentially goes across the age span and it will address a number of areas of impairments ranging from sensory impairments, physical impairments, or cognitive impairment. Thank you, Bill. You were talking a lot about what it means uh, for occupational therapists to work with people with disabilities and what impact that can have. But When you say disability, what? how would you define disability? Like, when is someone disabled? Ooh, that's a big question. 
Uh, and it really does depend on whether you look at sensory dis disabilities or physical disabilities or cognitive impairments. Um, for example, I have a, a sensory disability in that if I take my glasses off, whereas once I was independent and functional, I become, my blurred vision causes a lot of impairments, not enabling me to do the things that I want to do. Um, so giving you straight ahead numbers of the of uh, the prevalence of disability in Canada would be a little bit tough, and it would depend on whether you looked at either one of those categories or all of those categories. Essentially, though, we can say that um, given that we have 25% of the population approximately is 65 or older, and 80% of those individuals have some kind of challenge ranging from sensory to cognitive or physical. But it's not just related to older adults. We do have good examples of people who have traumatic injuries um, in spinal cord. We have approximately a thousand spinal cord injuries in Canada per year. Um, and, and that's just one example of, a, of, say, a traumatic disability. But disability, to answer your question directly, Isabel, is when you have a disconnect between somebody want being able to do what they want to do and having the the capacity to actually do it. So at sometimes, whether it's weakness caused by a neurological or um, musculoskeletal issue, uh, or whether it's just inability for limbs to work, as an example, um, they, these are, these present challenges from people being able to, to overcome limitations that they have. Okay, and so Tanel, when you are working with people with disabilities and you yourself are disabled in rat society, um, what form of disability do the people have? Like, is that also everything that Bill included, or are you um, having a limited amount of people you can serve? So RAD Society is focused on the physical disabilities. So when Bill speaks of the aging population, they oftentimes don't like to consider themselves and won't consider themselves disabled. They are just aging. So I have a large stereotype attached to my butt, the wheelchair. How many people in wheelchairs are you helping? It expands, like you said, much further than that to individuals who have had ACL surgeries, have a hip replacement, or had a stroke any time in their life from a kid to an adult, it doesn't matter, cerebral palsy, MS, spina bifida, they all look different in every single individual. Um, there's oftentimes just neurodeficiencies where somebody will fatigue when moving around or doing an activity that'll require adaptive equipment to help them out. So again, it's one of those statistics that how many people am I helping? A lot more than I could ever probably even imagine if it, if this program and when this program is marketed property, properly and and advertised so that people know it exists. Okay, so we touched a little bit on the importance, impact, and next steps a little bit for Rad Society, but let's backtrack a little bit. And Tanel, if you could provide a higher level overview of what Rad Society is, what it provides right now, so our listeners can get a better idea of that. 
Rad Society five and a half years ago started as a charity, not-for-profit, that is focused on providing adaptive equipment rentals and loans to people so that they can afford to play with their friends and family in however they need to do so. So independent living, youth and adult is the focus of RAD. And things from hiking wheelchairs, paddle boards, surfboards that you can sit on, surfboards that have handles, cross-country skis, downhill skis, a paragolfer that stands you up when you golf. You can use a piece of equipment like that for other activity as well. Um, gosh, beach chairs, beach mats, anything that somebody thinks of that I haven't heard of, let me know. <laughs> and all of these devices would be available to people to try it before they buy it to rent it out short term. They're big, they're cumbersome, they take up a lot of space, they are a ton of money. The adaptive paragolf chair is 42,000 Canadian dollars new. The beach mat to get you out across the surface, an uneven surface for 30 feet of it is $700. The prices of these things to go and participate with your friends and family, I see the op this as an option to share that cost and be able to help your community members that are struggling. And since this whole initiative has come to my mind, it has morphed into the communities now can invest in inclusion because if I go as an individual and start promoting adaptive recreation and leaving pieces of equipment behind in a community that I'm not from, they will prove to collect dust very quickly. The community needs to support it, the members of it, having fundraisers that promote and showcase what this, I've called it the rad gearbox, will provide for a space. It is a community investing in inclusion in a shipping container style, renovated into wheelchair accessible equipment rental shop that will show up in your community and be accessible to the members that are living there and all of the people that would like to visit there. Because again, it's expensive and it's very large and cumbersome most of the time and traveling with this stuff. If you want to go on vacation and go camping, you now need an adaptive bike, an adaptive hiking chair, a paddleboard, and none of this stuff you can rent anywhere like able-bodied people can. And it means that instead of being able to pack the minivan and go, you now need a minivan and a 12-foot pull-behind trailer. A lot of questions come to my mind uh, about what you just said, but let's start with um, what is currently out there. Like, why why did you identify this gap? What are the options at the moment? I identified this gap because I jumped into it. I jumped into a gap in the system where there's little to no support for the too ably disabled, the people that are just aging out of their ability to participate at high levels and are now having to seek adaptive means if they even know they exist. And the resources that are available right now, 
very much so. Well, five years ago, definitely were come and pay to participate with a certain group with their volunteers at their location. And then you can never take that piece of equipment and go and play with your friends and family. So over the five years, there have been more organizations that have started to adopt equipment rental. And oftentimes it is bikes and skiing. So there's all of these other recreation activities that aren't being looked at as something that should be available to everyone. The equipment's expensive. It's hard to maintain. Um, Everybody's different and they like different pieces of adaptive equipment. So the places that there's nothing like Rad Society, there's nothing out there that has a big shared container of all the adaptive equipment that is available for you to take as if you were completely able and going to rent a bike at the shop. It took me able-bodied renting a, to rent a bike under five minutes just in Lake Louise last week. Disabled? That isn't even fathomable. So how did you procure all this equipment that you currently have uh, in your inventory if it's so hard to find and so, so expensive? Like, how did you get your hands on them? (laughs) Panhandling for pledges is how I like to put it. Um, I've gone through some crazy ordeals to get some of the pieces of equipment. It took me one year to get the first paragolfer and I paid half the money for it. I had to drive from British Columbia, Canada to Southern California, rent a U-Haul, put it in it and drive it home at the end of the day. Uh, That was probably the biggest excursion to go and get a piece of equipment. And the initial half 50% down on it was, was, um, fundraised at the first ugly pant classic that I had which was a golf tournament where everybody wore ugly pants and went to promote adaptive golf so yeah it's just a lot of work a lot of fundraisers I've done a virtual fundraiser virtual polar bear plunge this last year with covid uh yeah it's it's been entertaining <laughs> I'm not a I'm not an event planner or a fundraiser by any means by trade and I have hosted probably close to a dozen fundraisers since the inception of rad and yeah panhandling for for pledges so lots of kind of on the ground efforts so do you currently have kind of more stable supplier of your equipment now or is it still kind of finding those little pockets of equipment supplying people i have in my within my network i've made a lot of friends and associates and connected with many of the equipment manufacturers Fortunately, in the adaptive equipment world, when you find a manufacturer, you've usually found the engineer of that piece of equipment. It is not a very large group of people. So, and it's still one by one. I have yet to find the recurring funding annually that would 
make a more steady flow happen. But that said, with this rad gearbox idea, I'm I'm going to sell and pitch the package of everything to a community. I'm not selling the equipment, but selling adaptive recreation in a gearbox. And once communities start to realize the value in this investment, it's mental and physical well-being for so many members in the community. So, you know, cracking the window, doing the grind, (laughs) get the first one off the ground and start a feasibility study. And this is Bill's involvement huge to make this happen and make it realized by other members that have yet to experience any sort of mobility challenge or adversity when it comes to participation outside. So Bill, Tanel mentioned mental positive outcomes from using uh, the RAD gearbox. Can you expand a little bit on positive outcomes of people with disability, being in nature, doing recreational sports, uh, being mobile? Can you expand a little bit on that? I, well, I can only try because, I, I mean, I'm, my perspective is very different from Tanel's. I, I don't have the mobility challenge that she has, as an example. But There is a lot of evidence in the literature to support people getting recreation, as an example. Um, And once they've been deprived of that and they're able to re-engage in doing the things that they love to do, then that just has this profound effect in terms of having someone with reduced anxiety uh, mood, uh, elevated mood. Um, so if you even think about yourself, when you get to go out and say, go for a nature walk in the park or, um, go for a hike or get on a bike and go someplace that you've wanted to go for a long time, but haven't been able to, if you, and COVID's a perfect example of, of a barrier that has really interfered with people being able to go out and do the things that they want to do. Um, you can imagine that if, if once you have the ability, once you've been provided with that adaptive piece of equipment that enables you to engage, you could just understand how a person's spirit would, uh, would improve, uh, just through, uh, a really even a really quick exposure to doing a 10 minute excursion out in in into uh, the forest as an example. Can you tell me a little bit more about the process? So if I was someone who wanted to rent an equipment, what does that process really look like? So currently everybody that rents equipment contacts Rad Society, which is me, and I facilitate how if and how I can get it to the person, mostly based in BC right now. So the prototype gearbox will come out with QR codes on all of these pieces of equipment. So they're inventoried and accounted for. Somebody will be able to, there's another side to this, with a RAD app, go and book their time slot for said say an adaptive mountain trike, which is a hiking wheelchair. They will then be, they have to be able to come and pick this piece of equipment up. This is the encouraging independence in adaptive living. 
So you have a rad ambassador at the gearbox, the shipping container, wherever that's at. Your user comes to check out this piece of equipment. They get their tutorial on it. Within this QR code, there is your written explanation of the mountain trike. There is your two to four minute instructional video on YouTube on all of the ins and outs and the things that may happen for for um, maintenance purposes that you can check out on a quick video and your waiver and you sign off on this mountain trike and then you are able to take it for a nominal rental fee and just to hold you accountable to this very expensive, you know, sometimes up to $16,000 for this mountain trike to go out and do whatever you like. You can take it on the trails that are close to the gearbox. You can put it in your vehicle and go wherever you like. And depending on the timeline, maybe you get to go camping with it and experience trails that, you know, aren't close to home. So the rental process will become more refined over time and with the development of the app which will also be a connector piece for all of the other gearboxes that show up in other communities and potentially individuals that have adaptive equipment that they can share with community members places that you can go that are accessible you know in the 30,000 foot view of restaurants and hotels and bike shops that can fix your adaptive bike and the list goes on and on. <laughs> this is the perfect segue to talk about our sponsor of this episode. If you want to make a difference by leveraging your skills to create a unique digital media solutions to complex problems, the Master of Digital Media program is now accepting applications for the fall 2022 intake. Register for a free webinar to learn more about the program and how to apply at the cdm.ca slash webinars. You mentioned a little bit of a learning tutorial. Um, just out of my curiosity, how long did it take you to reorient yourself with an adapted recreational device? Was, is it like a steep learning curve? It depends on how much you recreate in the past. <laughs> For me, not really. I was a fitness competitor and fitness model before my injury and did all the adaptive or sorry, all of the outdoor recreation activities from fishing, biking, snowboarding, hiking. I wasn't much of a surfer before my injury because I'm a prairie kid, but I do that now. Golf, um, tennis, I I played and, you know, at a low level, but did everything before my injury. So coming into the adaptive world was pretty simple. I'm well aware of the physical capabilities of my able body and what muscles do what actions and what I still had control of so my fitness background really helped some people completely uncoordinated and they take a minute but they always get there <laughs> so what is that about newbies so like about people who are not that experienced um, with generally their body but also adaptive recreational gear how can they use uh, the rad box Well, it's the same thing. It's just coming in and having your rad ambassador take that time with you. 
a lot of people will be told that they can't do something. Well, I would like to sit you in a piece of equipment and watch you try until you can't try anymore. And at that point, then you can come back tomorrow and you can try again. But the word can't should be wiped out of people's vocabularies. Too many people are told they can't do things when they are very well capable of doing so if you just encourage them. So the rad gearbox is until you give up, we're not going to give up on you. <laughs> That's good to hear. Uh, in that context, um, Bill, you mentioned in the beginning a little bit about um, the market size, so that how many people are affected with disabilities and the variety of disabilities. So it seems like the market size is big. Uh, but what is the reality about this market size? Is mental health, for example, affecting one's ability to get into recreational activities? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think the, and, and you've hit on a hot, on a hot button topic potentially. One is just awareness people being aware of the equipment, that, that is a huge challenge in this area. And then two, Tanel started to talk about the fit and the RAD ambassador who's going to be there to help the individual actually understand how to use the equipment, but also to, um, to be able to fit it to them so that they can maximize or optimize their performance in doing whatever they want to do. Um, and that's a huge challenge as well. Bill, I have a question in terms of how your experience and your background in OT um, kind of translate into this context. And just from your experience and from all this time that you were involved with OT, have you seen a trend or some sort of pattern in the need for adapted equipment for those with disabilities? And has occupational therapy kind of adapted with the times to also use more equipment in practice? So my experience actually goes back to my birth. My dad actually had a, uh, it was um, a real advocate and user of all forms of assistive technology. Our house was universally designed because he was in a wheelchair but he had the foresight and the knowledge to understand what his needs were. So I kind of grew up in what I call an occupational therapy environment. And in fact, that was my norm. So when I went over to other people's homes and saw all these different configurations of their home, like a smaller uh, hallway, a, a bathroom that you couldn't turn around in a wheelchair, um, my norm was very different than most people's. But you ask about occupational therapy, we've been providers uh, or in terms of procurement for adaptive equipment since the 19, early 1900s. And, and that, that's been a, one of our main toolkits in terms of, of helping people engage in, in daily activities. So we've always known that there's been the need. The bigger issue, I think, comes from a societal perspective in terms of getting funding for a lot of this equipment. And that's where the OT tries to advocate and work with the individual to find sources of, of funding to buy all this expensive equipment that Tanel is has uh, identified in the, the RAD gearbox. The big challenge 
from a policy perspective, and this is where academically and clinically we're going to run into issues, is the funding is there to make people marginally functional to do activities of daily living that are more related to self-care, taking care of one oneself, um, and and work. But getting into the recreation field, that's where we have a big issue. And, and funding is going to be really tricky based on moving the government forward. And this gets at one of Isabel's questions from earlier. We need society to understand that engagement in recreation is a huge boost to uh, an individual's well-being. And, uh, and, and until we make, help society make that connection, that providing a, a, um, a piece of adaptive equipment for someone to go for a 30-minute uh, hike in the woods will have a profound effect on their need for use of health services. So, and, and that's the disconnect I think society has right now is they don't understand that helping people do the recreation that they want to do will inevitably lift their spirits and enable them to, you know, avoid using those health services. Can you give us a better idea of why the equipment is so expensive? Uh, is it the demand is not high enough or is it because it's difficult to build? Like, what are the reasons for this? We're a niche market. That's, that's just it. There's, there's not a lot of us. The, it's not funded by any government subsidy program. There are some some cases now where WCB and insurance is starting to realize the value of it, but still not, there's no insurance company that will pay for a pair of golfer for an individual. It doesn't matter who that person is. And that sort of breaks my heart if that person was a golfer and that's what they did and they hurt themselves say working on the golf course and WCB is not going to foot the bill for this piece of equipment then it just yeah it just proves this this weird sort of exactly what Bill said they they only support you enough to survive in the system they don't support you to actually get well with anything, um, be it mental health services or adaptive recreation access or any of the things that actually pull you into better health and well-being. Uh, with the gearbox, I would like insurance companies, you know, I would be able to then provide the try it before you buy it location so that the occupational therapist can then see the experience that they're having prove it valuable and then go and ask for this insurance to start to help support this good behavior in society. Um, again, it's not available for the tribe before you buy it. So insurance is, you can't prove it. You have to prove it to the government before they actually believe it. So that's what we're working on. That's why I have Bill. Help me prove it. <laughs> 
So Isabel, can I can I just add to Tanel's question? Um, yes. Or answer. She talked about niche market. the The problem is, while disability and impairment is a large, um, it's huge in Canada. There are lots of people with a variety of impairments and disabilities. But the niche market that Tanel talks about is everybody's disability is a little bit different. So that means you really need to customize and individualize a lot of the interventions that you provide, interventions in this case being the technology. Um, so, so I think that's a really important um, point to emphasize in terms of thinking about the, the population that is served here. And then the second thing is, I really agree with Tanel that WorkSafe has gone the next step and they are actually leaders in terms of addressing people's well-being and they've recognized the connection between say a physical injury and and uh and emotional and cognitive health and so they they are an example of part of society that has started to embrace the funding issue around the holistic needs of an individual in terms of addressing a physical injury in and of itself is not enough. And that's why we need to enable people to get back to doing things they like to do. Okay, those are really important points. And I think it really emphasizes that also Rat Society is not only about the gearbox, but really also about uh, bringing awareness to the system and about equality. So, Bill, can you tell us a little bit more then about um, your part in this project? So, Tanel said one of the reasons is that she brought you in to basically bring the numbers to show the impact. Yeah, and and evaluation is a big part of this the, the contribution that we're hoping to make in this partnership with uh, with Tanel. I think development is also. Uh, Uh, part of the upside of what we can bring academically. So we're partnering together with a doctoral student, Pega Durkishan, who works with me in my lab. And then she and Tanel and I have formed a, a partnership. We meet every Friday and we are currently pulling together a proposal. The proposal will be largely to talk to people about what their recreation needs are And then we will help Tanel in developing the, the software, the app that she's talking about, which will enable folks to identify which gearbox has which equipment and when it's available and when it's not available. Then we'll evaluate that particular software and refine it so that it inevitably serves the needs of the target population. And then the idea is we'll look at people pre and post their engagement with this equipment and capture some of the metrics that are necessary to show the improvement in health and well-being that happens from this intervention, the, the, the gearbox, the gear that's coming out of the gearbox, and how that really promotes an individual's um, Well, not only their independence, which is a big part of what technology does, but also the improvement in in uh, in general well-being. So, essentially, we're working with Tanel to help guide this from an academic evaluation perspective, so that we can go to government, we can go to policymakers, and say, 
look, you can have a pretty profound effect if you invest in this gearbox. So where Tanel's vision is starting very much at one gearbox right now, um, and, and she sees it populating to throughout British Columbia and perhaps even North America, we need enough evidence to show that it's important. And um, that's where the academic arm comes in. Okay, okay. So I think I kind of see the idea of the rationale behind tying the academia side along with this community initiative. So on a quick question, how is Rad Society um, currently advertised or made, ac made accessible for those who don't know about this resource? So I'm all over the internet. It's great that you asked me a bunch of very random questions at the beginning because I was completely, those answers you don't find out there like everything else. Um, so my prevalence online is the sole force behind the rad marketing and availability of information. So people find me through news articles and podcasts and Instagram and YouTube. I have a YouTube channel. And so that, that's been it. We don't have a lot of, we have no infrastructure. We, the shipping container I currently house the adaptive equipment in is not even accessible to me. I have probably a dozen and a half pieces of equipment that are flown around and driven around and people pick them up, but it's very centric to the West coast right now. And, you know, I will drag a lot of it back to the Kootenays with me. And as I do, so it is dropped and picked up and moved around and moved across the province. So it's, it's a startup. It's all me <laughs> and and help from some, you know, very, very great friends and volunteers that have seen the value in what I'm trying to put together. Can I add to that? Did um, we actually have, I guess, embraced another partner? Uh, this individual comes to the partnership with a lower limb amputation and she's as enthusiastic around and understands the value of recreation. She's as enthusiastic around that as, as Tenel is. And so has created another partnership with another niche group, if you will, who could benefit from this equipment. And the connection here is that this individual has known about Tenel and have followed Tenel's progress for quite a while. So Tenel is all over Instagram and um, if you've seen the list of podcasts she's done, she has done a marvelous job of marketing and getting rad started. And anybody who's been exposed to the, and I'm going to say the industry of, of commercialization or doing a startup, to use Tanel's work, understands and appreciates the energy that goes in, into this. It's a nonstop 24-7 endeavor. And Tanel has done a marvelous job, I think, in terms of communicating and connecting. And that's a real strength that I see in her and partly why I have openly embraced working with her from an academic perspective is she is a leader and um, 
she's slowly developing her following. I'm flattered. Yeah, we can. Thank you. <laughs> it definitely shows Tanel with just uh, what Bill just mentioned. It's very impressive. Um, we um, are wondering now. You have you seem to have so many ideas and um, such a big vision too. And you told a little bit about the vision already for this project. But can you tell us more about um, kind of short-term, long-term goals you have in mind regarding stakeholders? Like how how would you see this working out if the system becomes aware and says, yes, we, we want to fund this? What's the ideal state? Like my my 100,000-foot view of everything? <laughs> yes, that would be great. I see a lineup of communities waiting to invest in inclusion with it's like the monster energy truck and a big trailer that shows up with rad all over it. And it washes the medical sense of disability away from adaptive recreation so that everybody does want to participate and take the time to learn what's going on, showing up, promoting it in the community, bringing the friends in that network of people that love to travel and play outside so that the community sees the value and they see the people coming to that place to participate. It it'll bring people out of the woodwork in town. It will bring people to the town that have never been there before. And then the gearbox shows up and it's a shiny, beautiful thing that is completely accessible to people. And it just screams fun all over it. And that is then seen, like Bill said, all over Canada. I have people in the U.S. that want them already, and I would love to be able to give back to developing nations and drop gearboxes in places like Albania so that the kids that have disabilities there know that they're not alone and they're not the only single person in the community that has a, has an issue. Um Yeah, big 30,000 foot view. This RAD app I see as the circuit board between everything adaptive recreation, where it can connect all the organizations doing good things. You can have that list, that inventory, that that thing that you reference when you want to go and travel to a place and it tells you where you're safe, where you're welcome, and just connects the network. We don't have Social media and the internet has done a great job for all of us in the last 10 years, especially experiencing these catastrophic events and ending up in a totally different position than we ever saw ourselves in before. And I would like to have that on on one platform where people participate together. And like Bill said, I've I've got a network that is vast and I don't want that to I don't want all of that energy to disappear and dissolve, even if, even if and when I do, I would like that whole web and network to be strong enough to, to push through, you know, leave that legacy to be available to people forever. I don't need my name attached to it, but everybody does need that access. So it's time. I just think it's so impressive how you're able to work the grind like daily, but also still have this huge vision that just kind of keeps you going. So super cool. Can't wait to see it in real life once it comes, once it happens. Um, and then I want to ask kind of a more 
feelsy question as we near the end. So for both of you, Bill and Tanel, what do you think are your top three strengths and how do these add to the project to keep it moving forward? Bill, are you going first or are you going to throw me under the bus? <laughs> uh, I'm going to push you under the bus. <laughs> okay, perfect. Uh, my top three strengths. Uh, in this endeavor, the first being I experienced a massive loss. People that grow up with disability or the individuals that then experience the loss and have a family and kids and everything to focus on that I, I know at a younger age what everybody aging is experiencing. And this, this loss is draining of energy, and I still have it. So I will fight the good fight until I burn myself out. And the loss that is, that's, that's something that I cope with every day. And I wasn't even aware of it until a friend of mine with cerebral palsy put that in my face and said, you know, take the time to cope because you are coping with something different than I cope with. I've had my wheelchair my whole life. I know what life is like like this. And he goes, it's all new to you. So take the time and realize that you experience the loss and that's okay. So my loss is probably one of the biggest fuels for everything. Uh, my, my mouth, <laughs> my, she runs away on me and then I have to continue to catch up to what I've promised the world. So that's a great thing. I, the more people you tell, the more accountable you have to be to yourself. So my network and the people that are around me and the strangers that I've never met that follow and support what I do, that's a huge strength. And my physical capabilities, my body is very resilient and I'm strong. And if I didn't have that physical strength, I would be much sadder than I am. I, I am very fortunate to have my hands fully functioning. I have that fitness background that I mentioned before and that that physical ability that I still have helps the mental state as I drain myself fighting the good fight. That is hard to follow. Um, but I'm glad I pushed you under the bus first to know. Yeah. Um, into tears too. <laughs> no. Uh, so I, I think I share a lot of what Tanel's already said, but I would put it in probably three very succinct categories, per perseverance. And you heard a lot of that in what Tanel said, but I also embrace that. And that's one of the things that I bring to this partnership, I think, in terms of making this happen, because for the second part or the second uh, contribution that I bring is the knowledge and understanding and appreciation of the impact, the profound impact that recreation and helping people do the things that they want to do has. And so I've worked and lived within the disability community for a long time, and I have seen the joy on individuals' faces as they they uh, are 
able to do the things that they want to do. And that has such a profound effect on, on me that I want to give back. I want to make sure society understands and appreciates that this is an important area that needs to be the focus of our, um, our collective society moving forward. And then I guess the third thing is uh, bringing to this partnership is a, an understanding of the academic environment and making sure that we collect the metrics that can support Tanel in terms of growing her vision. And I think I know the right things that will uh, come to policymakers' eyes and help them embrace what she's trying to do. And hopefully in the long run, we'll end up with a, uh, a, a series of gearbox all throughout North America. And, um, and it will enable people to be well again. Well, all these strengths translate really well into the project. Before we end, is there a call to action or something our listeners should do that you would like to share? We do need support, I think, in terms of, although we have a really good team, we do need support in terms of uh, building the team with specific skill sets. As an example, it would be great to have a health economist on board. And so if we could find someone who would be willing to come and look at the economic investment and the economic value of this, that would be one call to action. I think that we could, if we can get the academic community to rally around and, and, uh, and um, support this important work going forward, that would be a huge contribution. And then the second call to action, I think, would be to invite the disabled community to come out and support Tanel. And we've seen examples of that where she has grown her um, the, the knowledge and recognition of what she's doing substantially. But we can continue to grow the disabled community under a single voice. And I think that that will have a profound policy change for society and understanding, again, the, the importance of, uh, of doing the, um, of getting involved and letting their voices heard that recreation is important for individuals with disabilities. Absolutely. And really bringing together different strengths to the team and rallying the community to support this initiative to become even greater than what it already is. I think today's conversation was really enlightening um, to see it not just be a research and then trying to translate it to the community, but this was a gap that Tanel found and then just ran with it. And then you found like, hey, I might just bring in Bill tied in with academia to even further this initiative. So it kind of flipped what we currently have been talking about in on this podcast so far. So it was just a really interesting way of finding the gap first, doing the initiative, and then bridging academia along. So all in all, just a super interesting conversation. So thank you again, both to Bill and Tanel for this conversation and telling us more about this. Um, all the information about Rad Society will be linked below in the description and all our call to actions will also be listed. So if you have any questions, comments, or interested in getting involved, all of the contact info will be down below. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Isabel.
Thank you both. Thank you to the Master of Digital Media program for sponsoring this episode. Learn more about the Master of Digital Media program at thecdm.ca. That's it for today, right from the heart of Vancouver. Keep in touch in the meanwhile on Twitter at Raincoat Podcast. Till next time, stay dry and stay safe.